Gresham College presents The Rise and Fall of Sourdough, 6,000 Years of Bread, by Professor Eric Pallant. Thank you, Valerie. Uh, thank you to <coughs> Gresham College for the, well, really for the brilliance of putting on this, this great lecture series and the honor of letting me come and speak. A very special thank you to the United States British Fulbright Commission for hosting me for five months here in England to do research and to do some teaching at Lancaster University. Thank you all for coming, and downstairs uh, too, thank you for coming. I, I honestly thought that we would be filming this so my mom could see it back home and that would be it. Um, but, but here you are. Just, just a couple of things before I get started about how I got started. Um, I got started because I love to eat bread. Um, and especially homemade, fresh from the oven bread is really how I got started. And nothing that Warburton's can make will compete <laughs> with anything that uh, we could make ourselves at home. And so, uh, as you'll see, I, I got started very, very early in my career. Somebody handed me a sourdough starter, and I had been making yeast breads. And I said, well, sure, I'll try it. And then I got started on Oh, just a few years ago, thinking, well, where did this starter come from? And I called the person who gave it to me, and I have it traced back at least to the Cripple Creek Gold Rush of 1893 in Cripple Creek, Colorado. So somebody has kept alive this ecosystem of, of uh, microbes that I'm still using every week to make bread, and I have brought with me, if anybody wants samples, at the end of the lecture. So um, I brought them with me like this. Um, <laughs> and got them here like this <laughs> uh, through the, uh, all kinds of security. This is how I got my sourdough starters here and I have the wonderful uh, position of being able to share them now with anybody in England and I have to get them back home. But now I have the challenge of trying to cover the history of wheat and of bread, uh, roughly 6,000 years. Um, and how we got from you know, homemade sourdough, that's one of my loaves on this side, and right, the way they market it now, just ta-da, this used to be bread on, on the right side. Uh, and so I've got to cover 10,000 years of history in roughly 40 minutes, so put on your seat belt, and here we go. Um, I really need to take you back about 100,000 years, and, and um, in all early societies, 100,000 years ago, humans were clearly recognizable as humans, but the primary source of nutrition was, was animals, was meat, and I'll show you why in a second. And the reason, um, well, meat supplies a lot of calories and a lot of protein and a lot of fat all in one place at one time, and it was men's work who went out and did this, and still is men's work. If you look in any society, Men do the hunting once every three or four or five days or once a week. They stand behind a barbecue and claim that they're working, and then the rest of the week they do nothing uh, while women take care of everything else. And so starting about 10,000 years ago, we have the last ice age receding. So the last glaciers are moving back into the mountains. The continental glaciers are moving north again. And we have this blooming of grasslands across Europe, across the Middle East, across the Levant. And the, the, the gathering work, the, all the really hard work, cultivation, well, cultivation's about to come, but, but gathering seeds 
is, is um, done by women, and it is still done by women. Um, and the hard work is to know which seeds are edible and which ones aren't in a field like this, right? This is before domestication. You have to go out there and pick just the ones that are still edible and miss the ones that are poisonous. And on top of it, the seeds are tiny and they're hard to pull off into your hand and capture them all. And uh, this was only the kind of work that women and girls who were carrying little gerbil pouches out into the fields would collect seeds and put them into the gerbil pouches. And we know this because if we look in, I'll show you pictures here in a minute, of, of uh, caves where, where sort of prehistoric people were living, we can find wild seeds in the caves. And to this day, it's women graduate students who are still out there collecting <laughs> seeds. Um, you can see them over here. But the invention of agriculture occurs pretty much all around the world at the same time just after the last ice age. So around 8,000 to 10,000 years ago, there comes an invention that had to have come from a woman or a girl who's thinking, she's the Leonardo of her age, the Copernicus, the Galileo. She is so smart to think that in a wadi that looks like this one here in the Middle East, that for decades, her parents and her grandparents, her aunts, her cousins, have been leaving the cave and walking a mile or two out to the field and saying, pick that seed and pick this seed. And then one day, she's walking back from the field with her little gerbil pouch of seeds after a rainstorm in a wadi like this one. And there in the mud, she sees some seeds that look awfully like the ones that she's collecting in the field. And she thinks to herself, should I go pick them up and wash them off, or is it not worth the effort? Right? And water is clearly a precious commodity in the Middle East or in the Fertile Crescent where seeds are going to become domesticated for the first time. She decides, no, I'm not going to bother, but I'll sort of make a mental note that I remembered seeing them there. And sure enough, three days later, in this warm climate close to the ground where it's a little bit humid, there's this constellation, this bursting forth of little green leaves. And this Copernicus, this Galileo, this young girl, looks at those seeds and says, that's where those seeds were. And those leaves, they look like the leaves from the plants that my mother told me I could go collect seeds from. And if those seeds, like the ones I have in my hand, could be edible, I could think about food growing where I wanted it to grow, not just out there in some faraway field. And so this is the real act of courage. The real act of science is while nobody's looking, she sneaks out to one of these mud pies and takes her finger and draws a circle with her finger. And while nobody's looking, because this is, this is her life, are these seeds, she throws a couple of seeds inside the circle. And three days later, they grow, right? And that's it. That's the discovery. That's going to lead to the first seeds. Here's an early ancestor of wheat, goat grass. You can see how hard it would be to collect these seeds and how tiny they are and how hard they would be to work with. And yet we find in those caves that within 25 years, they can date the time change from the bottom of the pile where they're mostly bones and a few seeds that are wild seeds and now there are some seeds that are clearly bigger 
and a little bit fatter, which means that the human brain has now figured out, I'm not going to eat the biggest, fattest seed. I'm going to save that one and plant it. And I'm going to make food grow where I want it to grow. And civilization as we know it is about to change forever. And so we see this happen roughly 8,000, 10,000 years ago that all through what's now called the Fertile Crescent, inside those caves, we see seeds that are no longer wild seeds, but they are domesticated. They are bigger, they are fatter, they are healthier. They are setting up an agreement between humans and plants so that humans now are going to change the way they live so that they will never live again just on animal meat, just on hunting and gathering. There's the opposite I like to think about, which is from the plant perspective, after two billion years of waiting, they finally have a species to do the work they need to have done, right? They put them in the ground, they water them, they hoe away competing weeds, they make sure that little mice and hamsters and gerbils don't eat their offspring, right? They coddle them, they take care of them. This is finally a good life for a plant. Okay, and it's a coexistence that is going to proceed for the next 10,000 years. And civilization is going to change once there's more food than you can get by shooting a gazelle. There's now a differentiation of labor. You now have people whose job it is to hoe and people whose job it is to protect the seeds. And there's a job of collecting them and making sure they're doled out appropriately. Right? That there's maybe somebody whose job it is to make a prayer to the seed god. We're going to invent religion, right? Because some years there were good seeds and good plants, and some years there were bad ones. So maybe it was the gods who did it. And so we have the invention of religions in the Fertile Crescent that immediately follows or at the same time as the domestication of animals and plants. We don't have bread yet. That's a different invention. For the first 3,000 years of domesticated plants, People are eating porridge, okay? It's a sort of a soupy mixture of grains and water. You might heat it up, you might not. So it takes to ancient Egypt where we're sure there are bread recipes, okay? And we know this because breads are in the tombs. We still have them, right? They're desiccated as they would be in the desert from long ago. And we see in the hieroglyphs um, the harvesting of wheat, the milling of wheat, you know, threshing of wheat. All of these things take place here. And the invention of bread again, women's work. We can figure out it had to have been women. Men were off building the pyramids, right? And mom is at home. It's not hard to figure out, right? She's got pards sitting there, but she's got a 13-year-old complaining that she doesn't have the right frock to wear tonight with the rest of the girls. She's got an 11-year-old who complains he's got a football match he's got to get to. An 8-year-old who's just been whining all day. A 4-year-old with a toothache. And a 2-year-old who's got scabby knees, right? And she has had it. And the porridge, like, she hasn't... It's been two days, okay? And this is how sourdoughs get started, right? There are yeast everywhere. This room is filled with yeast and bacteria. They will fall into any bowl of porridge I put out here. And in two days or three days in our climate, it will start to bubble. 
okay? And if it's wheat, which is the only grain that has ever been domesticated, which has enough gluten in it so that the gluten strands will hang together as those bacteria in yeast exhale carbon dioxide, it will start to rise and smell a little bit fermented. Husband comes home from building the pyramids all day. Wife is like, I've had it. Five kids are yours. This thing that's been rising for two days, I don't even care what it is. I'm sticking it in the oven. I'm leaving, putting it down. On, right? She throws it down on the table. It's risen in the oven. That's called oven spring. And the kids like it. And they want it again tomorrow night. And they're bringing their friends over to come and eat it, right? And now the mom next door is like, my son had something over your house that you're calling bread that I want to make for my kid, okay? And so when we get to the archaeological digs, this is the Amarna uh, excavation just behind the Great Pyramids, that the most common piece of artifact that comes out of there are bread ceramic cones that they baked bread in. Okay, this is roughly four or 5,000 years ago. There are 500,000 of these pieces of cones come out of this one dig. This is the fuel that you're feeding to workers to build the pyramids. Okay, and the way it works <coughs> is making great bread and this is why I'm into sourdough. It takes only four ingredients, right? Wheat flour. Now, you can make it out of rye. You can make it out of oats and things like that. But they don't make high, beautiful, lofty breads, rye breads. And I mean, think about your 100% you know, Danish ryes, right? They're German ryes. They're, they're heavy breads. Your oat breads are oat cakes. You know, they're not light and fluffy. Only wheat will do that. You need water. You need a little bit of salt, and you need a leavening agent. And the leavening agent is all around us. It happens automatically. Nobody knew why until a couple of hundred years ago. It was magic. But yeast and bacteria will fall out of the atmosphere and start eating, consuming what's in your porridge. They will release carbon dioxide and a variety of different acids that make sourdough bread taste very good. And if you need it, or even if you don't need it, and you put it in the oven, you'll have bread. Okay, the next great civilization to really figure this out are the Romans. And we have lots of evidence that the Romans were also a society that built themselves on, well, this, right? So their big concern, <coughs> if you want stability in any society, you have to do two things. You have to watch out for the men who are between the ages of sort of 17 and 24. And for them, you need to supply football every weekend, rugby, and pizza, right? And if they are happy, then there's no revolution. And you need inexpensive bread, okay? And so you have what the Romans did is they supplied every free man in Rome and his family 75 pounds of wheat a month, from which they could take it home, get it milled, bring it to the baker, or whatever, and make bread. So cheap bread, and lots of chariot races, and you should have a very happy population. Now, just as a quick aside, um, 
the Romans, among other things, are exceptionally good at sort of drawing wheat from all over their empire, okay? Uh, what we know from the Roman records is that the north of Africa during the rainy season supplied all of the wheat that went to Rome. And during the dry season, that wheat to feed the Roman armies that are sort of extending all to the ends of the empire is coming from the Caucasus, Eastern Europe, and this far, far away place in the northwest edge of their territory called England, right? That, and this is now the Eric Palant theory, which is not based in anything in reality other than my imagination, but Hadrian's Wall, which is the northern limit of the Roman Empire, right, as far as they were willing to go, is also just about exactly on the line as far north as wheat will grow. Farther north is oats country. Think about Scottish food, and they're eating oat cakes, right? The Romans don't eat oats. They're looking at oat porridge and oat cakes, and they think, right? I'm not going to do that. And so we're going to put up a wall, but that's probably not the only reason to put up a wall, but that's one way to decide this is as far north as it's worth going. Beyond this point, there's not much else worth importing, extracting for the Roman Empire. And sort of as proof of this, this is the Newcastle Art Museum. Like a day after I arrived in England, I'm at the Newcastle Art Museum for a Fulbright uh, workshop. <coughs> and you can see that this is the art museum. Satisfy me, and it's art in six stories. But I look up and I see, ah, it's the great flower storage at the very northern limit of where wheat will grow in Europe. Right? Farther north than here, by the time you're in Denmark, by the time you're in Scotland, by the time you're in northern Germany, you're eating rye and you're eating oats. You're not really eating bread. Okay, if we have bread and circuses, we have peace. Until you don't have bread or enough of it. And here we have um, somebody in the far eastern edge of the Roman Empire, born in a city uh, that you know as Bethlehem, but the Hebrew is Beit Lechem, Beit meaning house, Lechem meaning bread, the house of bread. And the first miracle that Jesus uh, actually performs, and the only miracle, aside from the resurrection, that is chronicled by all four of his disciples, is the feeding of the loaves and the fishes, right? He's come across the Sea of Galilee, mourning the loss of John. Um, he wants to be by himself, but he's followed by 5,000 men and an unnamed number of women and children who are hungry. And the priests come to Jesus and say, these people are hungry. And Jesus says, don't worry. I have with me a dozen loaves of bread and some fish, and I want you to do the following, which is what you do with a sourdough starter, which is I want you to take some and eat it, but before you take some and eat it, as you always do with a sourdough starter, you take some out and you give it to a friend, right? Or you save it for later. And so the miracle is that with just a dozen loaves of bread and some fishes, he feeds 5,000 people and has leftovers, okay? Um, and it's sort of the second, right? Bethlehem is the first mention of Jesus in bread, and the second one is the loaves and the fishes. The third one, he declares... My body is sourdough bread. 
you laugh, but that was the only kind of bread around, okay? And it meant something to people, right? It meant everybody had a sourdough starter at home, and a sourdough starter is something that lives forever, sort of like Christianity, okay? That it could be shared one friend to the next, like proselytizing, okay? He, he says, my body is wine, and those are the two things that as if by magic transform from one thing into another, right? That wine starts as grape juice, and then if you leave it out, those yeasts will land on it and turn from grape juice to wine, and, and, and the same is true with flour, right? Now, he could have called himself a lamb or a rock or water or something else that really meant something in the Middle East, but instead he chooses something that would have meant something to everybody who had a sourdough starter that just smelled so wonderful at home. It meant home, okay? And so he was promising an end to both spiritual hunger, the spiritual hunger that the Romans were leaving behind. There's only so many Sunday chariot races you can watch before you need something else to do. Uh, and the, the climate of the Middle East is such that we're never quite sure whether there's going to be enough food. And Jesus says, don't worry, I'll take care of both of those things. My body is sourdough bread. It's not lost on his followers that have one of these containers in all of their homes. They can smell it. They can taste it. There's nothing like that. You know, even the incense of the church don't compete with the smell of homemade bread for making you feel warm and comfortable. And if you go to the Eastern Orthodox churches, there's some wonderful story. Well, they're not stories. This is what they believe. The Eastern Orthodox churches um, sort of northern Syria out towards Afghanistan, some of those churches have as their Eucharist, here is the body of Christ that they make from sourdough, which they claim, they claim St. Paul says he got from the body of Christ some drops of perspiration and some blood that he then turned into starter, which is still being used in the Eastern Orthodox churches 2,000 years later. So you really are consuming the body of Christ. Okay, let's move it along to the Middle Ages when uh, the Roman Empire has collapsed. That ability to draw wheat from Northern Africa, from the Caucasus, from every place else has um, fallen apart. It is now a hand-to-mouth existence for the next 1,000 years in Europe. <coughs> And this is how the harvest is perceived in the great uh, painting by Bruegel in the 1500s, is we have the idyllic wheat harvest, and um, we're taking a rest, and we're drinking wine, and all that. And of course, it's not at all like that. Um, it is a very difficult time, okay? What you have is a manor, a knight, or a lord who owns the manor, and you have thousands of serfs who are working the land who are taking almost everything they harvest, paying it as taxes to the lord of the manor, paying it as tithes to the church, and if there's anything left over, they are trying to husband it as best they can to stay, revive, stay alive for another season, when in reality, there's bad climate, 
there's a hailstorm, there's a drought at the wrong time of year, there's locusts, there's plague that comes through and so many people have died, there aren't enough people to harvest the crops during that year. It is an extremely, extremely difficult time. And to make matters more frustrating still for the serfs, they did not have the time, nor the energy, nor the money to build their own ovens, okay? To build an oven is a big commitment. To keep it fired means spending time cutting wood and drying wood and firing up the oven so the bricks are hot enough to bake your bread. You didn't do that. You brought your meager earnings of grain to the miller who worked for the lord of the manor and charged monopoly prices. And then you brought back the flour, which had been adulterated with other things than what you brought them. And you turned it into a bread while you had the eight-year-old, the nine-year-old, the six-year-old, the four-year-old, the one-year-old, the two-year-old, and you're only 17 years old yourself, right? You bring that loaf back to the baker, who is the only one with an oven, who also works for the lord of the manor and has charged you too much money and maybe even took a little bit of bread out of the bottom. Okay, it is a very difficult time for a thousand years. And not much is going to change beyond having a sourdough starter in your kitchen, making it with flour, turning it into bread, going to the baker, bringing it back until the 1730s. The 18th century, we see a regime in France that forgets the bread and circuses admonition, right? So, Marie Antoinette, when the price of bread gets to be too high in Paris, is supposed to have said, well, if they don't have bread to eat, let them eat cake. She's supposed to be that out of touch with the peasantry, okay? I'm guessing this is the most famous quote of any revolution of any time, and it's not true. Not a word of it, she never said it. There's no association with her having said it. It comes up 50 years later by her opponents who attribute it to her to justify their actions. Nevertheless, the French did make the mistake of letting the price of bread get too high, and what you have is a women's riot. They leave the city of Paris. They march six miles through the mud in October in a rainstorm all the way to Versailles, which is the right, most opulent palace in all of Europe, and they extract the king and the queen they call them terrible names, like the baker and the baker's wife, because that was the most hated person anybody knew, right? It was getting charged too much for something you really needed. And then they uh, brought them out and <clears throat> off with their heads, okay? That's what happens if the price of bread gets too high. We're now up to the 18th century, the 17th and 18th century, and still, the ability to make a bread rise is either magic or religion. Nobody knows what's happening on the inside. We have a guy, uh, Antoine van Leeuwenhoek, who's a Dutch microscope maker, who <clears throat> at the same time Galileo is looking at the heavens, he's discovering a universe just as unknown under a microscope, and he looks at a film of porridge and discovers these things floating around, and he doesn't know what they are. He calls them animalcules because they might be biology and they might be chemistry. 
right? They might be molecules, and it takes 200, more than 200 years before scientists running a whole series of experiments are able to conclude that, in fact, they are biology, right? We're into the 1840s before Louis Pasteur is able to say that these little wiggly things that show up under a microscope are living, they aren't just molecules, that their actions cause bread to rise and grapes to turn into wine, and that is the process of fermentation, and they are related to this new thing I call germs, okay? So that there's this whole world of little microscopic things, some of which make food, and some of which cause syphilis, some of which cause gum disease, some of which cause like early maternal deaths, right? And so we're discovering both those things at the same time, and we're not quite sure which is which, and I would argue even today there are people who are kind of confused about which is which. All right. Here's the real question. <laughs> and, and sort of as proof that I think the answer is yes, I don't believe anyone who ever went to tea, high tea in England, came away saying, oh my god, the bread. That bread was amazing, right? It is the most forgettable part of tea. You talk about the china, right? We talk about the service. We talk about the little cakes, okay? We might talk about what's between the bread, but the bread itself, we have to cut off the edges. We have to put it in little triangles, and we forget about it, okay? And here's why. We have the Industrial Revolution, and that is an English invention. Okay, and it changes everything. It begins with textiles, right? The idea that used to be we made thread by one at a time, right? Trying to get a spindle to drop and a thread to spin around, and if it's flax or wool, and then we make another thread, okay? And then we have these guys like Compton and uh, Arcton, right, who are saying, you know what, I bet we could figure out, I mean, basically he stole a bunch of copyrights and put them all together and at the right place in the right time said, we could mechanize this. And then we can mechanize the people to work with the machines, which don't have to rest. Machines can run day and night, and so people can run day and night. And once we're now amassing very large numbers of people who are working 12-hour shifts, women, Children, old people, nobody's making bread anymore, okay? We need to fuel them the way we fueled pyramid builders. We're going to have to get quicker at making bread. And so there's this sort of, well, if we can make textiles by machine, I wonder if we can make bread or other foods by machines, okay? And so we have on the... Left side, the spinning jenny for making continuous fabric, and on the right side, the continuous oven for making breads. And we're going to need to come up with better ways of making bread, and we're going to have to get that to these very concentrated populations. Okay, so the red areas in this map are essentially the industrial heartland of England. 
So we've got to get a lot of food there. We have to get it in a hurry. We have to get it in large quantities. We have to keep these people going so they can come back and work another 12-hour shift. And it's at this time that yeast, the ability to grow yeast, because Louis Pasteur has figured out that yeast is a living thing and it's separate, it's not magic, it's not religion, and we can grow it in vats, the English again sort of lead the world in saying, I'm not going to waste my time with sourdough. That's a 6,000-year-old technology. It takes two days to grow it up. I can walk next door to the pub, take some foam off the top of his vat, dump it into my flour and water, and the thing will rise. And coincidentally, I have to tell this story. Just yesterday, I got word that my sourdough starter from the Cripple Creek Gold Rush of Colorado from 1893 has in it a yeast called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, okay? The National Center for Yeast Collections, which is a British center, as only the English would have, 4,000 yeasts in one place, 4,001, because I brought them my little bag, and my yeast has my sourdough starter has among all the other species Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Cerevisiae is the word for the Latin word also used for in basic Spanish or Italian. Beer. It's the same yeast, right, that you can go from a loose bread and stick it in to a vat of <coughs> barley malt and water and turn it into bread. Or you can go this direction and take the foam, which has Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and put it into bread and make it rise. Okay? They're the same yeast. The Egyptians knew that. They were drinking beer to go along with all that bread. The mid medieval people in Europe were eating bread and drinking beer. Okay? They didn't know what they were doing, but that's what they were doing. That bothered, you can imagine, Victorian England to know now for a fact <coughs> that the bread is affiliated with alcohol, okay? And so we have this British invention called the Aerated Bread Company, okay? And so what you have here, the Aerated, the invention of the Aerated Bread Company in the late 1800s is this invention. It looks like a mine that you could use to blow up a ship. It really is a cast iron thing five feet across. You put in flour, you put in water. You have a canister above it filled with carbon dioxide you open the valve, the carbon dioxide inflates the flour and water on the inside. There's a little valve on the bottom that you crack open, put a tin underneath, the thing goes bleep. Out comes a little glop of bread which immediately starts to inflate because it's got carbon dioxide that was under pressure. You run it into the oven, two hours later you're done. No human hand touched it, no baker sweat into it, no alcohol associated with it in any possible way, nor any taste. Anybody who ever tasted this says it tasted an awful lot like grass. <clears throat> okay, so they then start putting in additives to make it taste like bread. The brilliance of this thing, though, was the marketing of the aerated bread company. Here in Victorian England was the first place, and apparently still here in London, if you look up, there are places where you can see ABC Tea Room in the old paint. The first place in the world to start marketing to women, right? So Victorian women were not allowed out by themselves unless they were accompanied by their brothers or their fathers. 
except to an ABC tea room. And suddenly they had doubled their market. And so women were willing to put up with these little triangular sandwiches that never touched a human hand in order to get out of the house. All right. Whoop, backwards. The 1950s, the British invented the Chorleywood bread process, and this was a, a means of further mechanizing the bread, turning the dough into part of the machine itself, filling it with extenders and retarders and all of these things that you now recognize as chemicals on the side of your bread, which is where Warburton's and Havis bread comes, and this is right the Chorleywood bread process. This is what most of you know of. If you go to Sainsbury's or Tesco's, this is how it was made. These are the ingredients of <coughs> the harvest bread on the left. Because we're Americans and we do things better than you, USA, USA, USA. On the right side, we have our Wonder Bread with 40 ingredients, all trying to imitate what sourdough organisms do, right? Supply a little bit of sour, supply a little bit of preservative, which is natural in sourdough bread. Because those microbes are at war with each other, they exude little chemicals to prevent mold from growing. So a sourdough bread doesn't mold for days, okay? And here we have all kinds of additives to try and do the same thing. And sourdough bread is chewy and stretchy, and so we've got elastomers and those kinds of things over there. Before I really hit the English too hard, I hand it to the British also for starting the Real Bread campaign, right, which started in the late, early 90s, which is a, a, a movement, and I am, I have the great fortune to go around as part of my studies <laughs> to visit places that are artisanal bakeries and say, can I have a slice, right? It's a wonderful job, really it is. Um, and to say, how did you get to be part of this Real Bread campaign? And why are you doing this? And they're all saying the same thing is because the most important ingredient in a good bread, whether it's sourdough or any other, is the one ingredient that's missing from all of our lives, and that's time. Great bread takes time. There's just no way to do it in two hours. All right, just to uh, wrap up, um, I'm. I'm here as, a, as, as I think we said at the very beginning, a Fulbright scholar uh, working uh, on this book, which right now is being read by me and me mom and nobody else. Um, uh, publishers are all saying, well, that's sort of interesting, but nobody would come to a talk on 6,000 years of history. Uh, to share sourdough starters, um, these are some of the breads I've made with uh, my, my starters. Um, I have a, a mapping project where I, I give away my sourdough starter and see you know, where it goes. And it's now in South America and in China and in Europe. Um, and if you want some at the end of this talk, I will give you some. I have some dried and suspended animation so you can wait a week or two weeks or two years or whatever and bring it back to life. And I guess I just want to finish with these are all of, not all of, this is a few of the things that one could make with a sourdough starter and just four ingredients, flour, water, salt, and wild microbes that fall in from the atmosphere. You could make your own. You don't have to take mine. You do like the woman in ancient Egypt, put out some porridge and wait three days. It will start bubbling. 
And you could make these, or you could make these. Or you could make these. And I guess I'm going to close with um, who here is a little bit hungry? All right, thank you very much. If you have any questions, uh, I will be happy to answer questions. If you're downstairs, run upstairs or catch me afterwards and I'll answer those questions. So thank you. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.